I want to say thanks to the people that this week have reminded me to pray first. I can't tell you how many people have uh, asked me, well, did you pray first? And that's been a great thing. I even, said, I even saw that somebody uh, posted something about praying first at some point. Now, you know I didn't see it directly, right? Somebody showed it to me. Um, but also, um, the reminder, uh, how's your conversation been with the Lord through this week? And um, it's, it's, been, it's been really good to enter into that with people and to talk about, this is what I'm talking to the Lord about. And it was funny because Dina and I are kind of walking through a moment where we don't want to walk with uh, having to get a different vehicle. Um, and uh, any, anybody that likes to go to car dealerships or buy cars, raise your hand. Yeah, three people. Um, but anyway, we're walking through that. And, and Dina, Dina asked me yesterday as we had visited our like 11th car, um, have you been praying about this? Right? And I said, I've got to be honest. N no. Right? It's okay to be honest. But then I recognized I should be. This is important. This matters. I should be. So as we're, as we're talking about this, this culture that we desire to be, this culture that we want to continue to develop, we recognize a church that has a culture of prayer prays first. It also prays always. We said that praying first means to make my daily to-do list a daily prayer list, making it the first thing I do when new stuff comes along, and making it a priority in my encouragement of others. Pray always is being aware that God is ever-present, having no desire to be separated from him, not even for a moment, inviting him into every experience of life in, in real time, right? Being dependent on God for everything and, and not desiring to live this life independent from him. Being conscious that he is and he is alone, as Ross was praying earlier, he is the one doing all of this. He is the provider, and his supply is perfect, whether it's for our needs on a daily basis or it's for our salvation or it's for our future. So the last one, at least for now, um, in this culture of prayer, a church that has a culture of prayer prays through. Now, I'm looking around because I want to look at some of the people that have been around for a long time. When I say the word pray through, there are people that get kind of this reaction because of some of the things that they've experienced in their life with that terminology pray through. In, in my experience, in my background, the phrase has been used to include a lot of things. When you pray through, that means you are being serious about prayer. When you pray through, that means you have decided that you're going to spend hours and hours and hours and hours in intercession. When you pray through, it means that you're grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. When you're praying through, it means that you are in a place where you are highly emotional before God. When you pray through, you are not quitting 
until something happens. Now, I'm not going to criticize or condemn anyone who ever truly desires to pray, who truly wants to communicate with God, who truly wants to humble themselves before him and see him move in some way in their life or the lives of others. What I will say is that sometimes the side effect of the way in which prayer has been taught and even sometimes the way it's been approached has given some the idea that if they follow the right formula, if they do it long enough and with enough zeal, they can open a channel to where they can tell God what to do. Or they can even try to twist his arm up around his back about something specific because if they're intent on it, then he has to buckle. Sometimes I've even heard people use scripture so that they can hold God to his word. Can I tell you that what we are going to talk about today is not praying in some way to overcome God's reluctance to act or, or to move in some way regarding the things that are being prayed about because he has otherwise not been paying attention. Because God delights to hear the cries, the prayers of his people. And he delights to move in their circumstances of life. He delights to act for their good. Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Psalm 34, 6. The Lord heard the poor man when he cried and saved him out of all his trouble. Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. Isaiah 64. I will come... Uh, it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Jeremiah 33. Now, I know there's context to these, but it's, it's displaying to us a little bit of the character of God as it relates to his response to prayer. Call on me, and I will answer you. Micah, my God will hear me. Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon his name. There's a lot more scriptures and there's a lot more people in scripture that give accounts of the faithfulness of God and his desire to hear when we pray and his desire to answer when we pray. So when I talk about this idea of our church culture being a place where we pray through, what do I mean? I want to bring a few biblical examples that I believe can help us. The first one is Abraham. And for Abraham, I just kind of title this, a, a picture of saying everything you need to say. So in Genesis 18, we know the story. It's the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and all of the things that are taking place in there. The men had come down uh, and, and all of these interactions were going on. And it says this in verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household and after him and, and teach them the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham as he has spoken about him. 
So the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. While Abraham was still standing before the Lord, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, you know the rest. There's a conversation that takes place between God and Abraham. And it goes from 50 to 45, and from 45 to 40, and from 40 to 30, and from 20, uh, 30 to 20, and 20 to 10. Right? That's the conversation. We kind of fast-forwarded. We're going to do that a couple times today. This is the last verse. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. There's a couple of things that are exhibited here by God. The first one is this. He's willing to listen. He didn't have to, but he was willing to listen. The second thing is he cares about the things that we bring before him. He, he could have listened in a way where he just kind of sloughed it off, right? But he didn't. And we also find that God is very patient. I mean, a lot of people have taken this thing of Abraham going from 50 down to 10 and you know, say there was a bargain going on or whatever. But whatever the, the scenario, whatever God was allowing to take place, whatever it was that Abraham was doing, would you agree that God was being very patient with him in those moments of time? Because if your kid came to you and said, hey, I need $50, and you said, no, you're not going to get 50 What about 45 You're not going to get 40 What about 40 no, you're not going to get four. I mean, you would be ratcheting it up all the way down to 10, right? And when you got to 10, you'd probably say, no, I'm not giving you anything. You were supposed to cut the grass. You were supposed to take out the trash, right? I mean, that's our impatience. We can surmise what was on the heart of Abraham somewhat, his motivation from his own words. He did not want to see the righteous and the wicked treated alike. We can also surmise what was in Abraham's mind somewhat and what he was truly wanting to be assured of. And though it took him a little while to get there, he continued the conversation until he did because he didn't keep going after 10. There's something to be learned here. And that's this. When we pray, get it all out. I know, rocket science, right? When you pray, when we pray, get it all out. Could this have been maybe the understanding that led Peter to write this? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or, or the psalmist, Psalm 62, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. There's a reality to God's invitation to us to have relationship with him and, and to talk to him about life. And that reality is he wants to hear it all. How often 
do I go to prayer and I only get, scratch the surface of it? I, I don't get into where my mind is. I don't get into where my heart is. I don't get into where I'm, I'm really struggling, right? But he wants to hear it all. The second thing I want us to see is David. So Abraham, if he was a picture of saying it all, getting it all out there, then, then David is a picture of being honest, completely honest. If you look in the Psalms, you see that David is honest about a lot of things. In Psalm 3, he's honest about his enemies. 4, about being in distress. 6, his soul greatly troubled. 9, his afflictions. 13, his sorrow. 22, finding no rest. 25, about his loneliness. 30, I need help. I need mercy. Psalm 31, I need rescue. He was honest about where he was before the Lord. He was honest about himself. He was also honest about how he felt about wicked people and wicked things going on around him. Psalm 69 is a great example. Save me, O God, from the water, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I don't know about you, but I've actually been in that scenario deep mire, mud, where you have no foothold. They call it gumbo mud in Mississippi, and it's the kind that you sink into. It's not quicksand, but you sink into it down about a foot, and you don't get your shoe back unless you dig it out with a shovel. And there's no foothold unless somebody comes along and pulls you out. It's a frustrating place to be. I have come in deep waters, and, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Verse 5, O oh God, it is you uh, who know my folly, and, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. That's some pretty honest statement there. Verse 7 says, I have borne reproach, dishonored, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers. Verse 10, I wept in my soul with fasting, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to people. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I'm a song for drunks. Verse 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick, and I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, and I found none. That's some, that's some deep level honesty there. That's, that's more than just saying, hey, God, having a bad day today. Can you help me out here? He also talked about his enemies very honestly. May their table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, may it be a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. Add iniquity to their iniquity. May they be blotted out of the book of life. That's pretty honest too, right? That's pretty honest too. How many times do you say, God, you see this guy bugging me here? Can you help me out here? That's as far as you go. And yet there's so much more there, right, to explore these psalms like this are called imprecatory psalms. I mentioned it last week. They're, they're these prayers for the punishment of my enemies. 
It's the kind where it says grind their bones to powder and stuff like that. If you ever want to read them, it's like Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, 140, and a few more, right? So there's a lot of them there. Deep level honesty about the way I feel about the wicked people around me and the people that have become my enemies. Honesty. He was also honest about his own sin. We've looked at Psalm 51 before. You've looked at it probably on your own. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Pretty honest. There's a few things we can glean here about God. His invitation to talk to him about everything really means everything. He, he does not command us to only bring good things. He does not command us to only bring easy things. He does not command us to bring only nice things, but also the bad and the difficult and the ugly. But this is tough, though. It's really tough because some have had it instilled in them that expressing any doubt any anger, any sadness, or questions to God is somehow wrong, or maybe even disrespectful, or dishonoring. If that's the case, then the guy that was speaking to Jesus about one of the miraculous things that took place in Scripture, and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus should have shut him off right there. You can't talk to me about unbelief. You have to believe fully before, right? When you read the scripture like these Psalms, you realize that this thinking that I cannot talk to God about everything that's going on in my mind, everything that's going on in my heart, is not biblical thinking. In fact, the, the people who knew and trusted God the most in scripture and were, were those who were also the most honest with him, the most vulnerable before him. They held nothing back because they knew that he already knew. There's one other thing that they knew and that we can know and that there is freedom and honesty before God. There's a, there's a reality to God's invitation to us to be in relationship with him and, and to talk to him about life in, in real time. And, and that reality is, one, he wants to hear it all, as I already said, and two, for us to hold nothing back. The third thing I want us to see is Job. So if we've got the say everything you need to say guy in Abraham, and we've got the honest guy in David, Job is a picture of agreeing with God. Now the story of Job is a long one. Lots of moving parts. Lots of long speeches by people. But at its core... 
It is the message that though we may not understand God's ways, his ways are perfect, and to agree with him must be our highest priority. Now, I know I'm simplifying a huge writing into something very simple, but we, we know the story, maybe most of, I, I would imagine everyone knows the story of Job. I mean, it's used in secular culture all the time, you know, to, to mean, hey, having a bad time, you know. But we, we find in the story, the enemy of God comes before God, a conversation ensues because God's enemy had been roaming the earth. And if P Peter is describing this scene, the enemy was likely roaring like a lion and seeking someone to devour. God recommends he considers Job, something that I think, I don't know that I would like that necessarily, that God would recommend to the enemy of my soul that. But he, con he said, consider Job, a blameless, upright, God-fearing man whose life was lived in turning away from evil. God sets the parameters for the encounter, and Satan is off to destroy. First his animals, then his servants, and then his sons and daughters. Now, I'm not taking this lightly. I know I'm speeding it up here, but I'm not taking this lightly. All the animals he had, they were either taken by someone, stolen by someone, or hacked up by someone. All of his servants were either taken by someone, stolen by someone, or hacked up by someone. And his sons and daughters all died. Job was devastated. And the scripture says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. An outward sign of the, the contrition that this grief had brought about in him. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. What an incredible example of integrity, especially in the midst of such pain. Another conversation ensues between God and the enemy. God says again, have you considered my servant Job? Second time. For, for there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, I want you to note that last phrase because it's key here. You, Satan, incited me against him to ruin, which means to swallow up or to destroy or to devour or to bring to his end him, Job, without cause. Without cause means without any sufficient reason, right? Satan's reason or cause here was that Job's reason for fearing God and living the way he did was because God had blessed him so much and, and Job was selfish. And that if God removed his possessions, if God removed his family, he would, he would show God that this man did not truly love him. He was only in it for the money. The test, brought, the test Satan brought proved God right, but also that there was really no reason for the test in the first place. Satan's charge had no basis other than he likes to steal and kill and destroy and devour. In one last desperate attempt, Satan says, okay, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, 
put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. God responds, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So next, Satan afflicts Job's body, boils and sores and all of that stuff. It's a pretty gross scene where he's sitting there with a piece of pottery kind of shaving it off his arms and his legs and pus is going everywhere and blood and all of that stuff. And, and, and in that time, he's left alone with his wife. Her comments meant to injure only served, however, to strengthen Job's resolve. His wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. See, she was agreeing with Satan. The enemy of God said this, if you touch a person's life, if you touch their bones, if you touch their skin, then they will look you in the face and they will curse you for having allowed that to happen to them. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Still sinless. It's pretty amazing. And we're going to fast forward here. Um, next, all the so-called friends come to help, being not much help at all, other than to give Job the opportunity to process. And he processes quite a lot through here. Chapter 3, he laments his very birth. <laughs> Chapter 5, he declares God just. Chapter 7, the, the seeming futility of life is dealt with. Chapter 9, how can, God be a, how can God even be approached? Chapter 10, he deals with his despair. Chapter 14, the finality of what death really means to them, him. Chapter 16, he deals with his sorry friends. Chapter 19, he deals with insults. 21, God will deal with the wicked. 23, his longing for God. 24, does God ignore wrong? And that's a big question sometimes. Chapter 27, he dealt with his own righteousness. Chapter 28, the greatness of the earth. And chapter 29 and 30, his past and present state. Now that's a lot. You can be thankful I did not read all of that, right? But, but then Job in chapter 31 asserts his integrity in many ways agreeing with what God has said about him. What kind of man he is. And it's in this moment that he struggles with the reality that all this seemed to be done for no reason. All of this seemed to be done for no cause. God knew who he was. Job knew who he was. He struggles with how God does what he does and, and to some degree how God even governs all things. Then all of a sudden, Elihu comes along. He takes six chapters to rebuke Job to speak for God, to prove God just, to reprove Job for his attitude, and then speak a little bit more for God. Then God begins a discourse, a conversation, if you will, with Job. 
And what a conversation it is. It begins like this, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. That can't be good, right? I mean, you want the, the, the tornado to pass and the fire to pass, and you want God to speak to you in that still, small voice, calm and quiet and nice, right? In a whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Again, not starting off well. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched it on a line? And then it goes line after line after line after line. It's really incredible, and, and, and you would. You would really benefit from rereading, if you haven't recently, chapters 38 and 39 this week. But when God finally concludes this part, he says, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty. Let him who reproves God answer. In other words, now that I've shown you all of the things I do as God, how I supply, how I manage, how I care, and, and for everything and everyone everywhere, tell me the fault you find in how I manage, how I allowed one thing in your life that not only proved your integrity and how you are, what you are, and how you stand before me to the enemy of God, but also that you really matter in the grand scheme of things. And Job responds like this. Behold, light comes on. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job is, to put it lightly, overwhelmed. God continues, though, because there is more. There's more before there is complete agreement between him and Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, this is chapter 40, Now gird up your loins again like a man, and I will ask you and you will instruct me, Will you really annul my judgments? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? God then speaks of all his power in creation and in creatures, and it's incredible. And again, you would benefit from reading chapter 40 and 41. And this is how it wraps up. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust 
and ashes. Before we go any further, I want to point something out to you. Do you realize that what we've just talked about is what we talked about last week? What we were just involved in right there was this ongoing conversation, this this kind of thing that we mentioned last week concerning prayer. When we talk about praying always, Job and God were in this back and forth conversation, and it was going on for a long time. If you look at just the chapters in the Bible, I would imagine that, like the scripture says, not everything can be penned that was actually said in those moments of time. But there was this continuing conversation that was going on. What Job was experiencing in real time he was talking about with God in real time. I find that incredibly fascinating. There's so much in this writing, but to focus on our reason to be in this today is really pretty simple. There's a reality to God's invitation to us to be in relationship with him and to talk to him about life. And that reality is this. He wants to hear it all, right? He wants for us to hold nothing back. And ultimately, he wants us to see things his way. Now, if I was talking about anybody else but God, I would, I would probably get a little upset. I, I'm, I'm fine to tell somebody everything. I'm fine to be honest with them and tell them how I feel. But at the end of the day, you want to call me to see it your way, I might have a problem with that. But God does not have a problem with that because his way is good. And not only is his way good, his way is perfect. And as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, that's the goal. That's what he wants for us to have and know and experience. That which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is perfect. So what does it mean to pray through? As one writer said, praying through is not as much about storming the gates of heaven as it is a way of subduing our weakness and shaping our desires until we want what God wills and can pray accordingly and therefore powerfully. But in that praying through, could it look like somebody standing up and raising their hands and talking to God? Sure. Could it look like somebody sitting quietly and weeping before God? Sure. In fact, it could look like Jacob wrestling with God and leaving with a limp in Genesis 32. It, it could look like a woman with an issue with her blood pressing through all the obstacles that presented themselves so that she could get to Jesus. Matthew 9. Could look like Jesus in the garden praying again and again and reaching the not my will, but yours, Matthew 26. Could look like Paul asking multiple times for relief from his thorn, ultimately to hear and accept my grace is sufficient. 
2 Corinthians 12. But at the heart of it is something I believe the Puritans captured in a saying that they often use. You can see it in a a lot of different writings. They would use this phrase, we pray until we pray. Now I know, again, not rocket science, right? But the idea that we should pray until it's not forced or formal, until it's not out of duty or obligation, until it's honest enough to reveal our true motivation for coming to God in the first place, is I think what they're driving at. We pray until we pray. Do you realize that when you go to God in prayer, whether it's for 30 seconds or whether it's for 30 minutes, you have deep within you something that you want to communicate with him. Now, sometimes you, you communicate like, like uh, I read this week, you know, the, the practical joker little boys that, that run up to the, the doorbell and they ring the doorbell and then they run off, right? But there is something that, that is, is motivating that prayer, there, there is something that that prayer is coming from. It is coming to that place where one scholar said, we, we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, and then to cherish his will. So the, the, the question for me, what, is, what does that look like? Right? What, is, what does that look like? And the answer to that um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two questions. First one is this. What is motivating my prayer? What is motivating our prayer? What, what brings you to the place where you are going to spend time, 30 seconds, 30 minutes, 3 hours, in prayer? What is, what is motivating that? And the second question is this. What would it look like to pray through until God hears everything that you have to say on that particular issue, we are completely honest with him, holding nothing back, and we end seeing things his way. What's motivating our prayers? What would it look like to pray through? I want to give you a couple of examples, and we're going to end up a little short today, actually, because I jumped over a bunch of scriptures and didn't read them. So I'm expecting you to go back and read all of those scriptures, all right? Let's say that I'm motivated by a desire for fellowship with Jesus and being in the presence of God, right? So I I come to church and I'm motivated to be in the presence of God and I begin to talk to the Lord about just being in his presence and how I want to be there. Psalm 42 As the deer pants for the water, my soul longs for you. What would praying through in that moment of time look like? I think, and you can come up with your own. This is not scripture here specifically. So you might have some things to add to this that would be even more than I do. But praying through in that moment of time would actually take place when the thirst that I have is quenched by a deep sense of his presence, right? 
So if my desire is to be before God and to be in fellowship with Him and to know His presence and I begin that conversation with Him, then to pray through would be when that thirst is quenched. All of these you're going to find that there is a sense in which we do like the little boy running up to the doorbell, right? We want to talk to God about this, but we really don't want to maybe spend the time or invest the time or whatever. You know, it, it's like me talking to God about this car thing that we're going through, which I can't stand because I don't like doing that kind of stuff. I want to make it easy. I don't want to talk to the guy that's got to go back to his manager, and nobody else is selling cars hardly at all anymore. You get it? You get, you get where I'm coming from? So this is how I go to God with the motivation of my heart saying, look, God, we need a car. I need you to help us. And, 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 and that's it. Now, is that really everything that's in me regarding this? Maybe I'm trying to protect God from my stupidity. Maybe I'm trying to protect God from my anger or frustration. Maybe I don't want him to know that I'm angry or frustrated. Right? You're going to find a little bit in each one of these examples, but I think that's really what we're talking about. So what if I'm motivated by personal need? Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. What would praying through look like? It would be when I know God has heard me and he's heard all the things that I'm concerned about in daily provision and I've been honest with him and I am confident that now that my needs are before him, I really don't have to worry. What about if I'm motivated by a need for protection from temptation? Again, Matthew 6, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Praying through would look like when I am no longer fearful that I am going to fall into whatever that is, right? Maybe it's kind of like that conversation I referenced last week about the guy driving down the road and the temptation is there and all of a sudden he starts the conversation with God. When does he know that that temptation is no longer part of what he's fearing sinning against God? He knows it when he's two and a half miles down the road and he's talking to God about how wonderful his wife is, right? What, is, what does it look like when my motivation is a desire for wisdom? If any of you lack wisdom, James 1, let him ask God, who gives generously without reproach, it will be given. So praying through would take place when wisdom begins to reveal itself. Chapter 3 of James, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, unwavering, without hypocrisy. That's how it defines it there. So, so the desire for wisdom would then be met when I actually begin to be wise or at least understand what it means to be wise. What if I'm motivated by trouble? Paul in 2 Corinthians is talking about all these things that were going on, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even for life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. What would praying through look like? It would look like being at a place where I'm confident that whatever surrounds me as we studied one time in Psalm 125, whatever surrounds me, God surrounds that. Trouble is not a thing. What if I'm motivated by a desire to be free from worry? Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything, 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 
By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, just some of them, not all of them, because God can't handle all of your anxiety. He can't handle all of your fear. He can't handle, no, just make some of them known to God. That's not what it says. But it also says the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So what would praying through look like? It would look like that moment when my anxiety is overwhelmed by his peace. Do you think we ever stop short there in dealing with those kind of things? When we're a little bit stressed out or we're a little bit worried, we throw it up in the air to God and hope he catches some of it, right? But we don't pray through to that point where his peace overwhelms us. What would that look like if we did? What would that look like if we became that culture? What would it look like if I did that? What about if I'm motivated by guilt over sin? Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Praying through would, would, would take place when there is complete honesty, when there is complete brokenness, and there's the recognition that there has been complete cleansing. What if I'm motivated by something fun, like thanksgiving and blessing, Right? Praying through would look like that deep sense of gratitude at the end where I recognize the reason I'm blessed has nothing to do with me. The prayer that was prayed this morning, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with this church. It has nothing to do with my family. It has everything to do with him and what he has done. What if I'm motivated by the desire for the salvation of the lost? 1 Timothy 2, I urge that prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, kings who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. What would praying through in that moment for the salvation of the lost, for those who do not know the Savior, praying through would look like beginning to see people maybe a little bit differently. Maybe having a compassion that you didn't have before. Maybe having a desire to be used by God in some way to communicate to them and with them the good news of Jesus. The last one. What if I'm motivated by a desire for spiritual growth in my life and the life of others? Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. You know what Paul's doing right there? He's doing what we're talking about right now. He is laying, that. maybe that's why Paul had so many run-on sentences in his writings. If you look at it, Paul starts at the beginning of a chapter and ends two and a half chapters later with a comma. I mean, maybe that's what it was, though. Maybe Paul was living in what we're actually talking about here, and he was praying through things as he's writing. I think that's what's going on right here. He's being honest about where his heart is and where his motivation is before God. And he's telling these people, this is how I'm praying for you. Praying through in that moment of, of intercession for others and, and for their growth and for this deep spiritual 
need to be answered. I'm going to ask the team to come back. I, I believe we are being called to excel, excel still more and to be just such a church culture where we pray first. We don't go to the experts. We don't go to the WebMD. We don't call a friend. You know, we pray first. We, we, we don't pray just in the morning, you know, and then, by the way, if I remember at night before I fall asleep because I'm so exhausted, we pray always. We are in a continuing conversation with God all the time. And can I tell you, the more you are in a continuing conversation with God, the easier it is to overcome the challenges of life. What if we are a church culture that prays through, that we tell him everything that's coming out of us, that we have in our mind and in our heart related to why we're coming before him in the first place, and we're honest. We don't just protect him from all of our emotions. We don't protect him from all of our anxiety. We don't protect him from all of our fear. We don't tr somehow try to hide that stuff either. We are honest with him. And we stay there long enough until we come to the place where we agree with him regarding what we're talking about. I would ask you to pursue times like this, this week. Tell God everything. What's truly motivating your prayer? Tell him everything. Hold nothing back. Be, be completely honest about where you are. And stay in that time of prayer until you see things his way. Well, Pastor Dave, that may take a while. Yeah, but what's the alternative? The alternative is living a life of anxiety, frustration, anger, sin, not caring about others, wondering if God is even present sometimes, questioning why God does what he does and how he governs. That's the alternative. And you know what? That's no way to live. That is not why Christ did what he did to bring us into fellowship with God. So I would ask you to pursue times like that this week. One more thing. I would ask you to remind me. Because from what I've told you this morning, it's evident that I need this too, right? So we're all in this together. Also remind the rest of your brothers and sisters. And let's continue this process of this culture that God is calling us to build as it relates to prayer. Let's stand together. Ross, lead us.